Hey, it's Brandon here and I have some big news. Seven Figure Millennials is now beyond curious. I am so excited for this new brand and I would highly encourage you to go check out episode number 140 for all of the juicy details. But as a teaser for episode 140, the central question for Seven Figure Millennials, the original show from the beginning was, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? I spent over 1,000 hours researching this question and published 139 episodes. And after all of that, I have an answer. And I put together that answer in a legit masterclass that weaves together clips from previous guests all to answer that question. So if you wanna hear my answer, the why behind Beyond Curious and the vision moving forward, go check out episode number 140. But you are here listening to this episode, which I know is amazing, but I would just highly recommend you also check out episode number 140 for the full explanation behind the rebrand. All right, here's your episode. Well, hello there, my friend, and welcome to today's episode of Seven Figure Millennials, where together you and I are choosing to do things differently because you and I are committing to prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships while building a business that creates a meaningful impact in the lives of the people that we love and generating the wealth for us to design a beautiful life on our terms. And if you are here as a first-time listener, this is the very first time you've ever heard my voice, super Grateful to have you here. And if you're a returning listener that's coming back every single week, I am equally grateful to have you here and investing in yourself to expand and grow. And if this is the first time you're here, I got to show you the ropes a little bit. Every single week, I'm interviewing humans that are making a massively beautiful impact in the world so that you can take their hard earned wisdom to help you to do exactly the same and return the favor and continue to create an even bigger impact. And Oh man, how do I say this with like so much sincerity? This is an episode that can absolutely transform your life. And I really want you to listen to my voice when I say that because this is this is a good one. I will be re-listening to it over and over myself. And this person has already made a dramatic impact in my life just from reading his book. So today's legendary leader of impact is Gay Hendricks. And I'll read Gay's bio in just a little bit, but before I get to that, I wanna tell you three specific things that I want you to look out for in this episode. The first, how you can stop worrying forever. Seriously, how you can stop worrying, super powerful. Number two, how you can come up with your top five life goals. This comes in at the very, very end, so make sure you're sticking around for it, but this question that he asks that helps you to come up with your top five life goals has been one of the most clarifying thought exercises that I've had that I've done in a long time. And it's solved so many problems for me. So I can't wait for you to listen to that. And then number three, Gay's going to talk about something called the upper limit problem. So what is the upper problem, uh, upper limit problem? And why does Gay believe that it is the only problem that we need to solve? And um, man, I'm just so excited for you to discover this and share gays with gay with you. But who is Gay Hendricks? So Gay has been a leader in the fields of relationship transformation and body mind transformation for more than 45 years. After earning his PhD from Stanford in 1974, Gay served as professor of counseling psychology at the University of Colorado for 21 years. He has written more than 40 books, including bestsellers such as Five Wishes, The Big Leap, 
Conscious Loving and Conscious Loving Ever After, the last two, which were co-authored with his wife and mate for more than 35 years, Dr. Kathleen Hendricks. He is also a mystery novelist with a series of five books featuring the Tibetan Buddhist private detective Tenzing Norbu, as well as a new mystery series featuring a Victorian-era London detective, Sir Errol Hyde. His book, Conscious Luck, reveals eight ways to change your fortunes through the power of intention and gay has appeared on more than 500 radio and television shows including oprah cnn cnbc 48 hours and others and his latest book is the genius zone guys i said it before i'll say it again pay close attention to this episode this is going to be a big one for you and i just highly 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 with a million more highlies recommend that you pick up a copy of The Big Leap, which is the content where the majority of this interview is based off of. And of course, as always, that'll be linked up in the show notes because we only scratched the tip of the, the iceberg with this interview and it just is so, so good. And I, I encourage you to not only fully be present and enjoy this episode, but to expand your knowledge by listening um, or reading The Big Leap. I have it both on Audible and on Kindle. So I appreciate you so much for being here and I'm super excited for you to meet my new friend, Gay Hendricks. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Bigger Millennials Podcast. Mr. Gay Hendricks, welcome to the show. Beyond excited to have you here. This is going to be so much fun. Thank you. It's really great to be with you, Brandon. Of course. And uh, shout out to our mutual friend, Mike Kanings, for making this happen. Um, really, really grateful for you, Mike. And I've been just such a fan since he told me about your podcast that you guys run together. I've been listening to all the stuff, diving into all things Gay Hendricks. So super excited to share your insights with the world. And I thought a really fun place to start would be actually be with, with two powerful stories and memories from your childhood. So the first story has to do with your unique ability and it has to do with a cardboard box in your grandmother's living room. I would love for you to share <laughs> what that was all about. Yes. Well, for my birthday one year, which is January 20th, I got a tricycle and I'd been, I had my heart set on this one particular tricycle and I got it and for my birthday and Oh, was I happy about that? I was only like, I think I was, I can't remember if I was four or five, but anyway, um, I hadn't gone to school yet. I know, I know that for sure. Uh, my grandmother lived next door to my, my mother's house. And so I spent probably half my time over at my grandmother's and she had a huge living room and my mother didn't. And so it happened to be raining that, that day that I got my bicycle, which is common in Florida in uh, January. <laughs> and so I couldn't take my tricycle outside. And I was really, oh, you know, it was just burning to ride my trike. And my grandmother gave me special permission to ride my trike around the living room, wow. uh, which normally would have been, oh. Uh, um, <clears throat> so they rolled back the rug and I, I would ride my little tricycle. And I rode for, gosh, I don't know, probably drove him nuts. I rode for probably half an hour or so. And then I came up with this idea. <clears throat> 
I got my granddad to help me put a big cardboard box in the corner of my grandmother's living room and uh, as kind of my special birthday celebration. And I had him, I didn't know how to spell yet, but I had him write the word problems on the box. <laughs> and um, for, uh, for some reason, I remember it was in some kind of red uh, letters. Uh, and the deal was, I got inside my box and that was my office. I climbed over the top, you know, and got into my box and I sat there and that was my office. And people were supposed to come and tell me their problems. Mm. Now, here's what's weird, Brandon, is I lived in a little town of uh, 10,000 people in Florida, in central Florida. And there was no thing like a psychologist or a psychiatrist or anything like that. This is 19, let's see, around 1950. And so the school didn't even have a guidance counselor at that time when I got wow. up, into, up into school, you know, so it was really, where would I have gotten that idea? So that, that led me to think that somewhere down in us is like James Hillman says, a code that we kind of unlock and it has the template for our life, especially a life in genius in it. And so I, I didn't know how to language it at the time, of course, but it just seemed to me the thing I most wanted to do was help people solve their problems. But here's the interesting thing, and it's still <clears throat> family stories are still make jokes about this to this day. I told everybody that I didn't want them to come to me with physical problems. I said, you could go to a regular <laughs> ordinary doctor for that. But the other stuff is what you come to me for. Well, they didn't know what I was talking about, you know, because none of them. They <laughs> So later on, when things like psychiatrists and social workers and things, you know, came about maybe 10 years later, they were always talking about that, that my first job that I gave myself was sort of a five year old psychiatrist. Way ahead of the curve, way ahead of the curve. That's so, so cool. I love that. And I wanted to start there for so many reasons. One, just being because it's an incredible story, but also this is just such a pattern that I see is every once in a while you get a chance to talk to someone and they have that early seed of genius that was just planted. It's just like, there's no way that could have come from anywhere else, but some kind of design, divine inspiration. I had Brian Scudamore on, who was the founder of 1-800-GOT-JUNK, and he had this story very similar to that, where he painted a picture of him removing garbage from as a, a four-year-old or something like that. And it's like a picture of, of him. He drew that when he was four and then creates a $700 million a year company removing junk. Like it's just crazy. Some of the things that you see from that. So I, I love that story, but I, I want to dive in a little bit deeper and, and talk about another insight that came from your childhood that I thought was also very, very special. And it has to do with, I might pronounce his name incorrectly, but Mr. Lewin, 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 um, Mr. Lowen. Mr. Lowen. Okay. So Mr. Lowen. Sam Lowen. It was L. Well, you could say it Lewin or Lowen. It was, it was a, originally a Russian name that I think, it, but anyway, go right ahead. Okay. So, so I, I had this highlighted from your book. When I was growing up, my next door neighbor was Mr. Lowen and he shared a powerful bit of wisdom with me. I've kept it in my mind for more than 50 years. And I thought this was another, this kind of just ties into your early childhood curiosities. Uh, so we'd love for you to share what, what he shared with you on uh, a, a day in Florida as a, with a philosophically inclined kid. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got so much wisdom from uh, Mr. Lowen. Um, but the I, I'll tell you the juicy part of the story was yeah. Mr. Lowen was a genius businessman. 
And he was an elder, probably, um, well, I knew him for 30 years. He he was alive. I think he died when he was about 101 or something like that. Mm, so he was wow. a, a long part of my next door life. Uh, he lived next door and he was a, um, he had kind of gotten run out of Russia when the Cossacks wanted to get all the Jews out of Russia. And then he went to Germany and then um, he didn't find that they were very welcoming for Jews in Germany at the same time. And so he ended up uh, in Long Island in America. And he had this genius idea that he liked to be in the winter in Florida. And so he would go down and make deals for oranges to be sent north during during the winter. And then in the summertime, he would get, make deals to have Christmas trees sent down to Florida in the wintertime. And so he, he had his two ends of the business. And so I borrowed four watermelons from him. He always kept a bunch of watermelons in his um, uh, garage. And so I, I bought four watermelons for 15 cents a piece. That was the going rate for a wholesale watermelon in 1955. <laughs> I was 10 years old at the time. And uh, I took them down to the road, which was about 200 miles, I mean, 200 yards down the hill. And I uh, stood there by the side of the road for hours in the baking sun, holding up a green 10 pound watermelon and, you know, <laughs> watermelons, 25 cents. So I was going to get a dime on every watermelon. And that was the key to my fortune. But I stood there for hours and nobody bought one. So I had to lug all the watermelons back up the hill. And so at uh, at the end of the day, I had a kind of a crisis of confidence, you know, I, what, what am I doing wrong? And then I had this brilliant idea. Nobody wants to buy a whole watermelon. People want the immediate gratification of buying a beautiful pink slice of cold watermelon. They don't want the whole thing. And so the next day I changed my marketing strategy and I, cut them eight ways. So I had eight slices and I sold the slices for a nickel a piece. I couldn't keep enough watermelons. I went back up and down the hill. I kept just selling more and more watermelons. And at the end of the day, I remember I had 300, I mean, uh, $3.75. So I don't know how many nickels you, that is. I looked it up. That was, it's like $42 in today's dollars. I think that's what I looked up. I saw that. So it's a lot of money for a kid. It was. And, uh, I'm, I didn't know what an entrepreneur was at the time. And there were certainly none of them in my family not that I know of anyway. Um, so the idea though, of starting a little business that actually made money, that was so cool. You know, later on, when I got to meet famous people like Michael Dell and uh, folks like that and working with them and doing some consultations, I would always make a point of saying, anytime I met a billionaire or somebody prominent like that, I'd say, do you remember what your first present was that really lit you up like a birthday present or a Christmas present or a Hanukkah present? And Michael Dell said right away, he said, I've got a calculator. Mm. And I said, well, what, what did you do with it? He said, well, I, I wasn't interested in the numbers, but he said, I wanted to find out how it worked, mm. how something like that small could do so much work. On the other hand, Warren Buffett, Warren, what what's the first present you remember? It was a bus's change maker gadget. You know, the <laughs> kind that the bus guy wears around his 
belly, ching, 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 yeah, ching, yeah. ching. Well, isn't that a great insight into Warren Buffett rather than Michael Dell? I mean, they're both geniuses, but how they would apply that genius to me is really remarkable. Uh, so uh, I, I always, you know, Miss, Mr. Lewin exuded a kind of advice. I mean, he probably told me a thousand times, but the, what he exuded was the idea of any kind of challenge you get, look for the possibility it opens. You know, don't get stuck in, oh, nobody bought my watermelons. I think I'll go buy a Pepsi and take a nap. You know, that <laughs> that that was not the Mr. Lowen way. And so uh, I learned, I mean, unbelievable wisdom from him about how to take adversity and turn it into advantage. And mm -hmm. to this day, I mean, God forbid that any of us ever have the kind of difficulties that Mr. Lewin had. You know, the fact that he had to walk, literally walk across Russia when he was 17 or something like that uh, to get out of the country and then walk to Germany. It was, you know, uh, those kind of challenges just are, are something that I can't even fathom doing. But the principle is the same, that it, it doesn't matter if you're falling off a thoroughbred horse or falling off a donkey. You just got to get back up and get back on the thing again. And so I always honor Mr. Lewin from that. Interestingly enough, uh, late in my mother's life, he bought a piece of property uh, that was another piece of property near my mother's house. And so uh, you know, we became recipients of some of his uh, wealth toward the end of his life. And mm. so um, I honor people like that. And I bet if you or anybody else looks into their life, they will find elders that gave them some wisdom, even though maybe you didn't listen to it at the time. But I really soaked up everything that Mr. Lewin said. Yeah. So beautiful. And I just would double down on what you said and encourage you listening right now is just some homework, like ask that question to yourself. What was that first toy that you got that you were super excited for? And like, maybe that was a sign of uh, genius sparkling through that you can tap into in a way that you, you haven't quite expanded on yet. And so that was, I just, that was great. I could just picture little, little gay running around with sliced watermelons and coming home with his pockets full of change. And <laughs> that was a incredible positioning lesson that you learned there as well. Um, let's, let's continue going on this. Cause I think you've got to to this, and I know this is one of your core business philosophies, but I think this kind of sets the tone. And then I would love to get into some of the big leap stuff. But you talk about how business to you is spirituality, and this to me has been something that has been so prominent in my life. Is that there's no better vehicle, no better container than trying to build something uh, and leveraging the stuff that comes up and the insights that you gain about yourself um, to just really, really grow in exponential ways. I would love for you to share some of your thoughts on what, what you mean when you say business is spirituality for you. Yes. I'm so glad you opened up this area, Brandon, because nobody almost, almost nobody ever asked me about that, but it's so, here's the bottom line truth. I've walked the floors of probably 80 to 100 big corporations walking around with one of their executives or the CEO being shown around. And I've, in my own explorations, lived in Zen monasteries in Asia and India. I've been to um, Buddhist monasteries in Nepal and Tibet. And uh, this is what the amazing thing is. 
you will find more genuine spirituality practiced in business than you mm -hmm. will in a monastery. Mm. And I know that for a fact, because I've seen the, I've been in monasteries where there were political battles and nobody was speaking to each other and things like that. And sometimes the conflicts would go on for centuries even, you know, that and mm. would involve in splitting into two different sects and things like that. Well, I remember Bob Galvin, who was the CEO of, um, Motorola at the time. His father, the original Robert Galvin, uh, during the Second World War, invented the talk walkie-talkie that everybody used, and um, you know had a huge um, influence on the war effort. Hmm. And he said he told me the story about his father. He said his father would look out over the factory floor, where because of the war most of the people who were assembling the walkie-talkies were women because the men were off fighting the war. And so he would look out over these and and instead of thinking of them as workers, he would sit there and think of them as moms and sisters and mm. daughters and people who were contributing to their families. And so he was getting this kind of like holistic vision. And that's why, I mean, to this day, you can find so much loyalty if you walk through the halls of Motorola. You know, it's just an amazing thing when you create a three or four generation business that has Bob Galvin's values in it of connection and seeing the spiritual essence of people. And so when I think of spirituality and business. I think of, um, I remember walking the halls of Monsanto once with uh, Bob Shapiro, the CEO, who, um, who was trying to make a big transition away from toxic chemicals and things like that, that Monsanto manufactured. It, it didn't turn out to be ultimately successful because he ended up uh, leaving. But I remember the way he related to people. First of all, I was amazed because he was paying me a considerable amount of money to do my consultations there for his executives and him. And I showed up, you know, in my Armani suit and my power tie and my gold cufflinks and everything like that. Uh, this goes back, you know, 30 years. And uh, Bob's there in a flannel shirt, you know, and I was asking him about that. And he said, well, you know, we deal a lot with farmers here. You know, our business is built on farmers. And that, you know, it, it made me realize, oh, you know, that's an interesting thing that you really want to even dress in a way that connects with the people. And so uh, honesty, for example, is one of the core values of many companies that I work with. Being able to say, I'm angry, or I'm scared, or I feel hurt right now. Being able to be cellularly honest, you know, just being mm -hmm. able to speak the simple truth. And that to me is a high spiritual value. But look at all the spiritual organizations that have crashed and sort of burned because they weren't willing to face the truth or tell the truth or let the truth be known. I mean, think of all the dozens of gurus and various ministers and things that have been 
run out of town because of improprieties and not telling the truth, basically. So that's what I mean by you can really find tremendous practical spirituality in business where people are really seen as growing human beings. And it surprised me when I often did not that did not encounter that in spiritual organizations. Mm. So valuable. Um, I just that's one of the patterns that I've recognized in your work as I've listened to your podcast and and the big leap is you're a master at transforming everyday experiences into springboards to see more about yourself. And I think that that's just super powerful for people to have that awareness because it all starts with the awareness of knowing that this is something that allows you to see deeper inside yourself. So I think that, I don't know, if, if, if you're listening right now and you've never correlated business and spirituality in your brain, I think that that's a very powerful thing to awaken. So I appreciate you sharing your insights. And I just have to sneak in here. I, I had the fortune of interviewing Marty Cooper a few weeks ago, who was the inventor of the cell phone. And uh, he actually was talking about uh, Bob, or Bob Galvin and the, the halls of Motorola. So if anybody wants to hear that story, Story of Motorola would uh, would check or recommend you check out that episode. But um, Gay, let, let's keep going. So so now people have seen a little bit of context. They saw the inner seeds of genius of of little Gay with his cardboard box with the the word problem <laughs> above it and some of the wise sages in your life. And and so um, I, let let's expand a little bit on on your journey of helping people to um, uh, express their genius, just like you've been able to do. So let's talk a little bit about the upper limit problem. And I thought a good way to start with this would be to kind of talk about the moment that you discovered it. So you're, you just finished lunch, you're at Stanford, and uh, you started worrying about your daughter. Uh, so would you like, like you to continue from there and share a little bit about the upper limit problem? My daughter, Amanda, my only daughter, uh, was about to go to her first sleep, sleep away camp. I mean, she, I had delivered her there that morning and it, the camp was only about like six miles out of town, but you know, to her, it probably seemed like it was 600. Uh, but I, I took her to the camp and it was going to be her first time. She was going to sleep over two nights. So it was a, a three day deal, but she spent two nights away in the camp and it was her first sleep, sleep away. And so I was probably more nervous about it than she was, but I took her to the camp and dropped her off and everything was great. And they checked her in and I met the director. And so I went back to my office and I had a morning and I was um, working on my work. And then I went out to lunch with um, a colleague of mine and we were talking about the exciting discoveries we were making um, there. And I got back to my office there in the Stanford Education Building and I started to go back to work, but I kept obsessing about my daughter. I kept having these images of her sitting alone in a corner of her room, you know, not knowing how to communicate. And I pictured other girls making fun of her or something. And um, um, so I, I got so consumed with those thoughts that I called the camp. And I spoke to the director, the woman I just spoken to and met a few hours before. And I said, uh, you know, I had some worry thoughts come up, um, Mrs. Fisher, about the um, about Amanda being lonely. It's a first time away. And I started into the story about the first sleepover camp. And um, she very patiently listened to me. And then she said, well, you know, in actual fact, I can see Amanda. She's out kicking a soccer ball around with a bunch of other girls. 
And so uh, it doesn't look like she's carrying around a lot of uh, upset with her. And then she was so kindly, the woman, she said, you know, you're the third call of this nature I've had today. And I said, uh, uh, what do you mean? And she says, well, consider the possibility that you're the lonely one, that you're the mm. one that you're not having your daughter around overnight for the first time in her life. And, you know, here I was, PhD in counseling psychology from Stanford University, and it had not occurred to me that this was a projection. <laughs> you know? But, you know, when it's your family or your close friends or something like that, it's a little harder to see through your uh, projections. Um, but anyway, uh, so that was the first moment I started thinking about, huh, okay, there was no reality to my fantasy about Amanda's loneliness. What would have produced such a fantasy and why would I have produced it? Oh, it occurred to me that I had some kind of allergy to feeling good for very long because I'd been in this one moment feeling so exhilarated and then that thought crept in, Amanda sitting in the corner of the room feeling lonely and suddenly, whoosh, I was bummed out. And so could it be that the main problem human beings have, the one problem is that we have this allergy, we attack ourselves, we abandon ourselves, we sabotage ourselves when things are going well because of some inner fear we have about somehow I'm afraid that if things go well for so long, something bad will happen or some kind of fear that we pick up in a programmed way. So I started looking into it and I found that there were these few fears that really caused all the problem. One of them is one that so many people carry around is that a lot of us have a fundamental feeling that we are flawed in some way. Um, fundamentally flawed by maybe we think we, we're not smart enough, or maybe we think we're the wrong skin color, or maybe we think we um, are in the wrong place or the wrong gender. Or, And I'm not saying there's, I mean, there's some valid reasons always in situations why, where you might feel that way. But on the other hand, these things become in yourself a limiting belief that then gets drawn upon when you start to do better. And I've had so many thousands of conversations with people where they've said, when we've been exploring this, they've said, you know, I realize I've never allowed myself to really feel good for a long period of time or really get along in my relationship, my marriage or whatever, for a long period of time. It's as if I have a voice inside that says, you don't deserve love. You don't deserve the good things of life. And so, so many of us are carrying around that limiting belief that's based on that fear. Another big fear I found in myself was what I came to call the fear of outshining. I had an older brother, Mike, who's a great guy, and he's the total golden boy. He's brilliant. He's good looking. He's you know, a student, engineer, you know, all of those kinds of things. 
And here I came along. I couldn't do any of that stuff. I was fat. I was not skilled in sports uh, or any sport that was around then. Maybe I could have skilled in water polo or something like that that didn't involve uh, lugging my body around. But I, I just didn't have all those golden boy characteristics. And I was always being compared to Mike in school and not always favorably either. And so I got this fear of outshining that I was supposed to hold back and because we already had a golden boy in the family, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I kind of began to define myself more by being a rebel and being a pain in the butt sometimes and, um, you know, being quirky and not uh, not liking to play games that other people were playing, liking to kind of devise my own games. And so, you know, all the kind of things that a creative person does to deal with not belonging and not feeling like you belong to the rest of the human race. And so anyway, I started looking into that in myself. And at the time, also, I was very gifted because I... Uh, that was when Silicon Valley was just getting underway. And that area was just full of brilliant engineers, mathematicians, computers, geniuses who were hopelessly unskilled at the emotional side of life. And mm -hmm. so in my counseling practice, I would work with one brilliant high tech CEO after another that was having emotional difficulties with their partner or maybe with the, the partner at work because of their inability to deal with their emotions like anger and sadness and fear and things like that. I, I couldn't believe sometimes how incredibly brilliant, smart people can be and be so hopelessly out of touch with their emotions. I had some of the same problem. You know, I had a lot of healing to do with myself because I was once an extremely heady intellectual with a very obese body, you know, that carried around a lot of unexplored feelings in it and everything. You know, now I'm I'm a good weight, you know, I'm I'm 180 pounds, I'm uh, six feet tall, and so I'm athletic looking now instead of looking like a pear that uh, <laughs> AR pear. <laughs> That's what I looked like in my younger years. Hey, Brandon here. I hope you are enjoying this absolutely incredible episode with Gay Hendricks. And if you're loving what you're hearing right now, I want to make a recommendation. And that is that you pause this episode right now and you go and subscribe to Gay's podcast. It's called The Big Leap. And he co-hosts it with Mike Canings, who is the person that introduced us. And also, Mike is an absolutely incredible podcast episode on this show if you want to go check that out. But I just really want to encourage you to check out The Big Leap podcast because it's been transformational for me. And specifically, I would recommend that you go listen to the episode called Five Steps to Finding and Staying in Your Zone of Genius. So once again, go check out the Big Leap podcast with Gay Hendricks and Mike Canings and listen to the episode Five Steps to Finding and Staying in Your Zone of Genius. All right, now back to this incredible interview with Gay. Man, there's so much beauty in there. I, keep, I say that after every time you finish speaking. So people are probably be like, Brandon, you sound like a brokered record. But a, a few things I just want to highlight, and you kind of said this, but this was a huge takeaway for me and a, a awakening, I guess, when I read it in the book, because you talk about how the upper limit problem is the only problem that we need to solve. And I just think that that is, it adds a level of simplicity and a level of clarity to you going throughout your daily life. It's like, yeah, we're here and we're supposed to be enjoying our experience as human beings. So if you're constantly coming up against these 
feelings of not feeling enough. And, and I know you touched on a bunch of them, but one, one of the quotes that I kind of force into every episode because I, I like it's so prevalent in my life. And what I've just seen as a pattern is a, a young uh, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will control your life and you will call it fate. And like, that is what these barriers are. They're people hitting up against those unconscious barriers. And you've provided language for people to recognize and identify when those are being hit so that we can then go above them. And so I just love it. And you had, you had mentioned a few, two of the four barriers. So obviously I would encourage anybody to go pick up the copy of the book, the big leap conquer your hidden fear and take life to the next level. So we'll have that linked up. Um, but uh, you talked about feeling fundamentally flawed and uh, being outshining others. The one that I resonated with the most was disloyalty and abandonment. Um, just mm -hmm. because I, I grew up in a family that was working in a small business and I, I felt the responsibility as a nine-year-old to help support them in doing their business in the way that they did it. And so that's been an interesting one for me to explore, but I appreciate you so much for giving language to this because I think it's really important um, as you're listening, if you resonate with those, those are some things for you to explore a little bit more. And I think there's lots of gold there for people. Well, I appreciate that also. I, it gives me great heart to see a person such as yourself at a very youthful age being not only understanding these ideas but helping disseminate them so blessings upon you for oh thank you uh warming my heart in that way thank you i i accept that and i appreciate that that is that is incredible so so we talked about some of the in, in your book the way you talk about these four barriers is these are like the the roots these are the roots of the problem you got to dig these up and you may not have more of the, you might have one or a few of the barriers, but there's other ways that the upper limit problem manifests in, in your life. And so if we can give some other people, some other tools I alluded to before, like, I think your work is giving people opportunities to leverage their real life experience to kind of springboard into their higher levels of, uh, of genius and, and presence and all that kind of stuff. And so the, the thing that my huge takeaway is actually, uh, I'm showing gay right now. I printed this out. I created a little diagram, uh, based on, uh, his, his insights on how to prevent worrying, uh, as one of the upper limit problems, because as it sounds like gay, you said you were a recovering worry wart. I come from a lineage of worry, worthy worry warts. So this is uh, really, really important to me. So would love for you to talk about how the upper limit problem manifests in, in worrying and how we can get rid of worry, <laughs> which is a huge paradigm shift for me. Yes, 99% of worry is just noise. It has nothing to do with anything you can learn from or anything like that. It's just noise caused by that allergy to feeling good. So mm -hmm. what causes that is you're feeling good and then that old fear comes up that let's say it's the fundamentally flawed one or the disloyal one. Oh, I'm being disloyal to my lineage by thinking these new thoughts. That's one common one. And so mm -hmm. instead of continuing to think the new thoughts and pursuing your growth, you retreat from them and sink back into the comfortable norm of where you came from. And so, but, you know, evolution doesn't, favor that very well because, you know, ethologists, people that study uh, animal migrations, tell us that between five and 10% of every herd likes to go over, over on the horizon and look for new food sources. And the downside is sometimes they get eaten. You know, they're <laughs> off there by themselves. But the upside is they get the good stuff first. Right. And then the rest of the herd comes in. And so 
you know, you're one of those people, I'm one of those five to 10% of the herd that's always off on the horizon there looking for what's next. And so if you get that, so things are going along, your relationships are going well, you're, you're feeling good inside, and then up comes that old fear, oh boy, I don't deserve that fear because I have this fundamental flaw of not being good looking enough to make it on TV, let's say. Um, I used to think that. And then I got on TV when I was 18 years old and I ended up thinking, hey, I don't look so bad. And so <laughs> I've spent literally thousands of hours doing exactly what we're doing now, being on a screen of some sort. And so now it doesn't bother me at all. In the beginning, it would bring up fear and anxiety and nervousness. So because I hadn't really learned to connect with the outside world with my true self. Once I figured that out and realized that all I've, all I've got to do is open up my mouth and say things that are true, I don't ever need to rehearse anything. That was one of my grandmother's great pieces of advice. If you always tell the truth, you never have to uh, remember what you said. That's a kind of a cool thing. You don't have to build up a block of storage of things that uh, little minefields that you know you're not supposed to step on. Um, there's another, I want to mention two other popular upper limits problems. Worry thought is a big one, but also little accidents and little illnesses often have to do with, um, with the upper limit problem. Let me give you a great example. I work with an executive, brilliant woman who is capable of running a huge business with her <laughs> left hand, so to speak. And yet she's always suffered from a fear of public speaking. Public speaking is one of those fears that, you know, a huge number of people have. And it's, it's said as a joke, I maybe have some reality to it, that at a funeral, more people would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. And uh, <laughs> so I... Uh, I, I've seen a lot of people who were really tripped up by their inability to speak authentically in public. So anyway, I, I got her, helped her get enrolled in some things like Toastmasters and that kind of thing. And it came to the morning of her first big speech. She was supposed to give her first two minute speech. Woke up at six o'clock in the morning with a real sore throat. <laughs> but fortunately she had a friend she could call who said, hey, could it be that you're having an upper limit problem? You're trying to mm. find some way to preserve that old frightened version of yourself. Hmm. Would you be willing mm. to consider that? Hmm. By 10 o'clock in the morning, she had no sore throat, no laryngitis. So uh, my advice is to look at things that go on in your body as upper limit problems. Certainly go to the doctor if you're feeling ill and that kind of thing, don't avoid that. But look, even little pains that occur or a stiffness. Hmm, I'm always asking myself, you know, if I stop feeling great for a moment, I say, hmm, what's going on? Oh, my neck is a little stiff. Hmm, what am I doing? Did I fail to say something in a situation that caused my body to stiffen up? See, I'm always looking for things like that. And that's the reason you know, I haven't had a cold or a flu in coming up on 30 years now, because mm. if I start to feel the first little sniffles or scratchy throat, immediately I just sit down and I start breathing and I 
ask myself questions like, hmm, am I out of integrity in some place? Did I fail to say something to somebody or do I, did I say something hurtful and not clean it up? Or did I, was I five minutes late for some appointment and didn't cop to it? So I like to focus on the integrity aspect of life because in the real world, the material world has certain integrity rules to it. And if we don't follow them, we get uh, beat up on pretty quickly. So if, for example, if you're habitually late to things, it will cost you, you know, and uh, eventually in some way. And so I recommend as you go through life, focus on your body, focus on your mind, notice when you start worrying, notice when you feel ill at ease, because that will often tell you where something went off, where you really went behind one of those old upper limit limitations. The nice thing about that, Brandon, is that when you notice that, you have a direct open door to your genius. Mm -hmm. So your genius is knocking at the door and it's your upper limit problem that's keeping the door closed. And soon as we start seeing the upper limit problem and breathing our way through those fears, all of a sudden you get access to your genius more and more because your genius is in that creative zone. It's not in the zone of the known. It's not in what you know about yourself that's, that's your genius zone. It's what you're discovering about yourself. It's a process of discovery, not a process of sealing it in and making money off of it or anything like that. It's a, it's a, your genius is a wild free thing that you're learning to tame within yourself and learning how to stay with it and be with it. So it's this wild eagle that we all need to embody, that we need to take the energy and the wildness of that and channel it into everyday life. Hit that back button 30 seconds or whatever two minutes that was and go re-listen <laughs> to that because there's so much there. I I wanna I want to continue zooming in on this and and the reason why I actually printed this out after I, I made this diagram is because this this one concept that that Gay is talking about, I could just feel the impact that this makes in someone's life when you become conscious of the fact that one. What, so here, I'll, I'll summarize some of my favorite takeaways, Gay, and then if you want to riff on them, I think that that. But 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 for me, realizing that worrying is an addiction was a huge insight for me. It's like oh my gosh, like I'm literally addicted to this right now, and like and 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 absolving that. So that was that was really huge. But for me, this is this is what I wrote down as kind of my diagram that I'm going to print out and keep all over the place. Is you kind of outline. Um, what to do once you notice this stuff popping up. And like, I, I would assume this carries over to like the physical illnesses or blame or whatever. But I kind of wrote down like, notice the worry thought, release the worry thoughts and shift focus away from them. And then this is the, this is the part that I just think is just so such brilliance right here. Wonder, the wonder, what positive new thing is trying to come through and get excited and curious about that being the the your genius surfacing and then looking for a a bodily feeling of where that comes through and then and then feel it and then good magic comes up later so i apologize for summarizing your own content gay but i would love for you to maybe share about how we can notice and recognize when that is and how we can better train ourselves to do that kind of jujitsu move where we take a worry thought and turn it into uh an insight as to what our zone of genius is Yes, think of your awareness as being like a flashlight. And like uh, when I was a little boy, I got scared one time um, 
because the wind was blowing through the window and it was making the curtains make this strange design. And it looked to me like there was some kind of monster in the curtains. And I mm. went and got my mother and she, uh, she came to check to make sure there wasn't an actual monster, but she gave me a little flashlight and she uh, just put it by my bed and said, if you have that again, just shine the flashlight up there and, and you'll see what the real problem is. So using that same idea, when you have an upper limit problem come up, let's say you find yourself in the middle of a bunch of worry thoughts, or let's say you're feeling real good walking down the street and then you start thinking some worry thoughts, or let's say you trip while you're walking down the street and you trip. I always ask myself when things like that, hmm, what was I thinking and feeling just before the little trip or just before I first got the sore throat? And that will often give you insight. But what you're doing is shining a flashlight on the curtain. You're saying, hmm, what's in there? You know, what's what's down inside? What's causing me to do that? In the old days, you might continue to follow those worry thoughts. You get one worry thought, and then you're having the next series of worry thoughts. And I worked with a client the other day, a very successful uh, CEO of a company who takes one little worry thought and then blows it up into something immense within about 10 seconds. You know, we'll take this little time, like the specific thing, interestingly enough, was um, he was greatly concerned because one of his grandchildren liked to dress up in girls' clothing sometimes. Right. And he was getting really wound up about this, even though he doesn't see this child, but once a year, probably, you know, he suddenly he's obsessing about this. And um, that's a perfect example of how to blow up a thought, because suddenly I said, well, what are you thinking about? And he was say, uh, he's saying, well, you know, what if they want to do a sex change? operation. Well, that's about 100,000 miles down the line from liking to wear his sister's dresses now and then, you know, mm -hmm. who knows what that means when a kid is three years old, but it probably doesn't necessarily mean they're going to turn into some kind of, uh, anyway, it, it, it's, it's the tendency of the human mind. Oftentimes, if you dwell on it, suddenly something becomes a lot bigger than it actually is. So when you find yourself engaged in worry thoughts or have a sniffle or have a have a upset uh, where you tweak a muscle or something like that, look underneath that and say, hmm, why was I trying to bring myself down? Hmm, what was that? What was I thinking and feeling? Because you're shining that flashlight on the curtain and saying, hmm, what's going on in there? The value of doing that, Brandon, is that Every time you do that, you get what I call a wink from the universe. You get a little opportunity to open up more of your zone of genius. And it's right there. It's behind the curtain that, you know, and once you learn to shine your light on the curtain, you see that beyond that is this immense area called your creative potential, what I call your genius. It's your highest creative potential when you're doing what you love to do and you're doing something that makes a big contribution to other people's lives at the same time. To me, that is the sweet spot of human existence. I didn't catch on to that until I was 
you know, I was up in my thirties uh, when I first started catching on to it. And I, uh, now, I mean, looking back on it, um, I'm surprised I didn't catch on to it in my twenties, but I was so caught up in, in a lot of my upper limit problems that it didn't occur to me that they were actually problems until uh, later on. But I've been thinking about this for the last 30 or 40 years and uh, probably worked now with, I think the last time they told me I'd worked with about 12 or 1300 executives in different businesses, as well as 20,000 individuals. But in that whole time, I've had the opportunity to just see literally thousands of people break through their upper limits and get their genius zones on the line. And the value of it, the great value of it is not only do you feel more peace inside, you find you get peace of mind, but you also get something rarer, which I call peace of heart, which mm. is you only get that from contributing to other people. That's how you get peace of heart. You take the, the learnings of your mind and you find a way to express them in a way that helps people live their lives. That, you know, here's my criterion. I can, uh, if you come in in my office this morning, I'm an early riser. I wake up around 4.30 in the morning. So if you'd come in my office at 5.30 this morning, you would have seen me sitting in a very comfortable chair with my laptop poised on my lap, my cat probably sitting next to me, one of my two cats. And that's basically the same thing you would have seen me doing 30 years ago. I'm still doing it now. I'm 77 years old. You know, a lot of people I know are retired years ago. But to me, I can't even conceive of what retirement might be like. Because, you know, every day I'm learning something new about the most essential things in life. And uh, if I get another day of opportunity to share about them, well, that's a great day for me. So I've created a job I wouldn't ever want to retire from. And I want everybody to consider that piece of career advice. If you're just getting started in your 20s, 30s, 40s, or whatever, finding your own genius zone, ask yourself, what could I do that I would never, ever want to stop doing? because it's so much fun. And I want to appreciate you, Brandon, for in at such an early age in life, getting established in your genius zone. That's a very brilliant thing. You know, in developmental psychology, we say in your 30s, you find your life. In your 40s, you build your life. And in your 50s, you enjoy your life. And 50s, 60s, 70s, you enjoy your life. Um, but people that are opening up their zone of genius get to enjoy their life right now, even if, you know, like you're a young person, are you in your 20s or 30s? 20, 26. 26, okay. Yeah, well, blessings upon you. Uh, at 26, I was uh, still in the grip of a bunch of addictions. I smoked heavily. I was overweight. I was in a job I didn't like, you know? So if you found your way through all those traps and are sculpting out territory in your genius though now, that's a fantastic thing. And it really warms my heart, especially, you know, if I can write a book that helps a 26 year old figure out some things about life, man, that is just the best feeling in the world. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The, 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 the respect and gratitude is, is very much mutual gay. Like I, I, when, 
when I read The Big Leap, I, I immediately felt the impact that it's had on my, because I've been on this journey for a while discovering, I've read, you know, Dan Sullivan's unique ability stuff. I've, I've, I've gone through lots of different processes to uncover my genius. And I would say The Big Leap to me is like the greatest synthesis that I've seen of this, of this topic in my, I don't know, however many pieces of information I've explored. So thank you for packaging it in such a, a beautiful way. And it's, it's, I just, I just think if you're listening to this right now, my, my sincere, sincere ask is that if, if this has been resonating with you, please, please go pick up a copy of the big leap. Um, we have just scratched maybe 2% of the surface. I mean, gay, I have 29 pages of notes that I've just highlighted in here. We've gotten to just like a teeny little chunk of it. And I know that's how these always happen, but like, I just like, if you want to dive deeper into these questions, if you want to figure out how you can take these opportunities and turn them into springboards, um, that's, it's just would highly encourage you to pick it up. So gay, I want to be respectful of your time. I know we only have a few minutes left. Um, so I, I, I was tempted to go down the whole unique ability thing, but the, I don't want to that, that, that requires a whole separate topic. So I thought maybe we can conclude on one, one final thing, if that's okay with you. Um, this was completely separate from the book, but it was a podcast episode that you did with Mike. Um, and, and it really stood out to me as something that has already also had a profound impact on my life, but it was how to come up with your top five life goals. Um, and you kind of walked Mike and, and talked about this experience you had about being on your deathbed and asking someone a really powerful question. This has been in, insanely powerful for me. I would love for you to share that. Yes. Well, the basic idea is that human beings don't do a very good job of reflecting on what we want to create for our whole lives. You know, so uh, I never had an assignment to do that in high school or college for that matter. That seems like a giant miseducation, a missed education so. opportunity. And I'm sure it's done differently now, but I can tell you at Le in Leesburg High School in the year of 1962, I graduated without ever one conversation about simple things like what did I want to do with my life or um, how to get along in a relationship. You know, those kind of things are missed out on, I think, in education by and large, and we need to do a better job of that for sure. Um, but I, um, I had the opportunity to meet a man one day, I was in a in the library of a house where I'd been invited to a party, and I'm not exactly a party animal, but my wife is very social, and she was uh, meeting people and everything, and I kind of wandered off into a back room, which was the library of this mansion we were in, and it was the engagement party for a colleague of mine, a fellow psychologist, and I, just on an amusing note, uh, it was going to be his fifth marriage, and I'd known him through two, three, and four, and I didn't have confidence in number five. So I was, a, I wasn't exactly a, a willing participant in this uh, in this uh, engagement party. Uh, it turned out they're happily married still here, 35, Good. 40 years later. Number so. five was the trick. <laughs> <laughs> number five was the trick. And so, but it, what happened to me was this elderly gentleman who was in his 60s, I was about 35 at the time, maybe, um, he came into the library with me and we were both looking at books on the shelves. They had this beautiful library in this mansion. And so I said hello to the elderly man. He was this tall, bald chap of about maybe 64, 65. And anyway, I said some comment like, um, you don't like small talk either, do you? And he said, no, I can't stand it. 
And he said, especially in the last six months. And I said, well, what happened? And he said, oh, I got the gift of a lifetime. He said, I had a near-death experience. Mm. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. So my ears perked up. Hmm. How could that be? You know, he said, on my deathbed, he said, I had a question come to me. And I answered the question and it changed my life. And I think it helped me get over this illness. So I'm I'm not ill anymore. And uh, so you can imagine I was sort of jumping from one fit, foot to the other saying, what was the question? You know? Actually, we're going to end it right now, Gay. We can't talk about that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> in the next episode, which is only $29.95 <laughs> and three easy payments, we'll give you the end of this story. Um, so uh, this gentleman, whose name was Ed Steinbrecher, he, he said, instead of telling you my story, let me just do it with you. And I said, okay. And he said, close your eyes and imagine you're on your deathbed. How old do you think you're going to be? And for some reason, uh, the number, I think it was 82 or 83 came to me. And when I thought about it later, it's probably because that was the age my grandmother died. So frankly, I'm not attached to dying at age 83. That was just the number that popped into my mind. So whether it's 72 or 83 or 93, it doesn't matter. But what, how old are you? And I said, 83. And he said, okay. I'm coming to your side of your bed and I ask you a big question. Was your life a total success? And he says, you say yes. And tell me five things that made you say yes. What's the number one thing that said made you say yes, my life was a complete success. And immediately I realized the one thing that I'd never accomplished, which would make my life a complete success, was that I developed a long-lasting, loving relationship with a woman with whom we could grow over the years in wisdom and love toward each other. That's one thing I had never actually seen in my family of origin. There were people that had been married a long time, <laughs> you know, like my grandparents were married more than 60 years, but my mother always said they spent 59 and a half of those years fighting with each other. So it wasn't exactly a kind of a role model kind of relationship to look at. So, but I realized I had this high standard for a kind of relationship I wanted. By that time, I'd already gotten my doctorate and was established and had written several books and that kind of thing. But I realized none of those things would matter. You know, like what value is a PhD in counseling psychology from Stanford if I can't learn to get along with one person over a long period of time? And at the time, I was just getting into my relationship with Katie, and but I hadn't really yet made a full-scale commitment to her. But as we went home that night, I counted what I said, and made that commitment to her, mm -hmm. you know, that I wanted her to be that person. Oh, I'm just feeling teary as I say this, because we just came back from Maui where we were celebrating our 43rd anniversary mm -hmm. of first meeting each other. And so here we are 43, more than half of our lives later, still acting out that first key goal of mine. Later on, oh, by the way, um, 
I wrote a book called Five Wishes. And if you want the whole detail on the other four things, uh, go read them, but I can run down what they were. So number one was relationship. Number two, I wanted to live in a state of completion with everybody in my life, particularly friends and family and people that were close to me. So there was never anything I hadn't said to them or anything I hadn't listened to that was in the way. So completion. Number three was I wanted to learn how to write from my heart rather than from my head. Um, and uh, I was sensing the possibility of a new kind of book. You know, I hadn't written anything like The Big Leap or Learning to Love Yourself or Conscious Loving or Five Wishes yet. And people comment on those books that they're very personal. That's the best piece of feedback I get is it sounded like it came from your heart is a Absolutely. piece of feedback I often and it does that because I wouldn't write a sentence if I wasn't feeling that space of love and, and creative genius inside myself. So anyway, uh, I had those five things. The other one was to learn as much as I could about the creator force in life. And a fifth one was to learn how to savor each moment of my life hmm. so that right now, for example, I'm savoring the experience of having this conversation with you. And as soon as we get, I can actually smell it in another part of the house. My wife has uh, been baking sweet potatoes, one of my favorite mm. uh, lunch treats and having a big sweet potato and some spinach. And so mm. that's what I get to savor next. And uh, so my job now in life is to savor every moment and to get the essence of the enjoyment out of it. So uh, go read Five Wishes if you want the whole story on that. You know, Gay, normally the last question I ask is, is what does happiness mean to you today? But I think that that answers your, your, your five. That's what, that's your definition of happiness is those things. And that, to me, that question, another gift I would love to just have you listening fully receive. It's like so much of uh, people that I come across, it's like you spend your life comparing to other people, but like you, you don't know what game they're playing. They're winning the wrong game. You know, what is the game that you're playing? What are the five criteria of success for you? And take the time to answer that question and listen to how Gay sh shared it. Um, and I would encourage you to carve out some time to answer that for yourself because that's been super powerful for me. So Gay, I want to be respectful. I don't want to take you a second longer from having that sweet potato and spinach anymore. So besides, uh, or I guess what I want to ask, where can people find out more about your work besides going and getting a copy of The Big Leap um, and and continue to learn from your, your wisdom that you developed over all these years? A good central jumping off place is Hendrix.com, H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S.com. Uh, another good place is our Foundation for Conscious Living. Uh, look up Foundation for Conscious Living because at that website, we have a tremendous number of free resources like videos on relationship issues and how to deal with problems and uh, how to feel good inside and in your relationship for longer and longer periods of time. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it from the man himself. Go check out Hendrix.com or the Foundation for Conscious Living and The Big Leap. And I'm so grateful for you listening, for hanging out with us today. And Gay, thank you. Thank you so much. Any any final words you want to say before we head off for today? Well, I enjoyed our conversation. And so uh, uh, sometime I'll uh, stop back by and we can do the other 28 pages of your notes. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Thank you so much, Gay. I appreciate you. And we'll talk to you soon, my friend.